0: it's me your host and friend Billy power welcome to the show how are you doing how's your week going you doing good I hope you're uh, you're killing it out there I know that you are um, my guest this week is mr. Matthew Edwin Johnson Matt and I have been friends for over 20 years he was the drummer in our band Blenderhead, as well as Don't Know, Roadside Monument, Supine to Sit, Rafted Dead Monkeys, 90 Pound Wuss, and uh, many other bands with uh, interesting names. <laughs> Matt is an incredible musician. He's a writer, a husband, and a father of two lovely girls. And on the first hour of this two part interview, um, we get into Matt discovering punk. Uh, learning to play the drums and the beginnings and endings of his uh, various music projects. Um, Matt is definitely the best drummer I ever played with, um, and many people don't know this, but Matt's actually a really good songwriter. He wrote uh, and contributed many of the uh Main guitar riffs to a lot of Blenderhead songs as well as lyrics. Um, so, not just a drummer, just a very well rounded uh, guy. He's uh, one of my favorite people. It was uh, great to catch up with him. Uh, so, thank you for listening and please enjoy the show. Matt Johnson, what's up,
1: man? Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm loving the show.
0: Oh, thank you. Um so listen, uh, the first thing that um a story that comes up all the time that uh that you and I share in common um I can't uh think of how many times I've actually retold this story, but um the inc- incident was the uh, infamous blenderhead MXPX focused bloodshed food poisoning incident of 1995.
1: Yes indeed. Remember? Yes indeed. I wish the yeah. memory was uh snuggle time or something. Instead, <laughs> Instead, it was the Taco Cabana food poisoning story.
0: Yeah, that yeah. was that was good times. That was good times. So i th- I think I woke up first in the middle of the night and kind of projectile vomited into the bathtub in our room yep. or something. I was
1: completely passed was all... out.
0: Was completely unaware.
1: Yeah, how did you do after that? Like, it seemed like you were okay the rest of the day. Did you kind of just take care of business and then you were all right, or? I nah, I think I stopped puking and then it was diarrhea mm. after that <laughs> yes by the time we got to the venue everyone was stuck in a stall there was like if you had to go yeah. you were kind of out of luck which uh kind of leads into the story a little bit there was only a small handful of people that didn't get sick and those were probably the people that went go-karting that night <laughs> they were always looking for go-karts they made the right choice uh yeah So. They did make the right choice in that situation. As I recall, you were always a little bit miffed that everybody was trying to track down theme parks and stuff because we were always on the way to a show and we had to, we had to like check in and actually do sound check. And everybody's like, hey, man. Yeah. Hey, there's a go kart place in the next town. And you were like, dudes, we're working. Can we please get back on? We're on vacation. Yeah. In this particular situation, (laughs) yeah, vacation. In this particular situation, uh, go-karting was the correct choice because we ate at Taco Cabana and everyone that went, um, it must have been the special sauce and the black beans. I'm not sure, but everybody got sick. And so I remember we were kind of doing a roundup at the beginning. Um, You know, everybody met in a central spot in front of the hotel and we're having a chat talking about the day and Yuri is the first to go down like... He gets sick in front of everybody and everybody just like backs away like, oh, man, this guy's got the plague. What's What's that all about? And you were like, oh, yeah, I was sick last night. And and then we were and then it was like, oh, boy, I think this is going to be a thing. And uh, I was just thinking about this earlier. It's funny to think about how the way that we stayed In communication with each other on the road then is that we had cbs
0: remember oh yeah i totally forgot about the cb radios that's funny
1: okay kids this is the days before cell phones basically i mean there were cell phones but nobody had one and while we were on the road we basically just talked to each other over a cb trucker style and i remember either mike or uh uh mike or tom saying Oh, dudes, it's bad. You got to pull over Yuri's He's getting sick in the van.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and we literally just
1: had to like, uh, I don't, I think we had a fairly long drive that day, at least a couple hours. And like, we always had a long yeah, drive. Totally. Yeah, totally. Thanks DLB for that, um, for planning, for mapping out that tour. That was, that was great planning on your part, but, uh, yeah, excellent. Riding. Yeah, so yeah. everybody was crazy sick. We get to the venue and, <laughs> uh, I thought that I was going to be okay. I feel like I have like a, an iron gut even to this day. Like if my, if my family gets sick, you know, all the kids are out roses out like puking and I can just like withstand it, you know, just like clench my teeth and <laughs> I'm not puking man, but, uh, not so in this case. So everybody is basically stuck on the bathroom all day or passed out. Um, and the show's about to start and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to be all right. And then probably a half hour before the show, there's people start showing up and I'm hanging out in the bathroom. I'm like, man, I think it's going down. And I'd already been in the bathroom, you know, to the toilet doing not puking, but other things. Um, and so was everybody else. So I go in there and all the stalls are taken. It's a full house. And I'm like, I'm like, Hey man, Hey man, you in there? Yeah, sorry, bro. It's all... <laughs> I'm like, oh, I was in stall
0: one. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. I was like,
1: come on, guys. In um, the bath you know, people are starting to come in, and this kid comes up to me, and uh, he's a he's like, y'all on Blenderhead? <laughs> yeah, y'all on Blenderhead? And uh, and I kind of I put up my finger. It's kind of like, dude, you're gonna have to hang on for a second before I can talk because I'm I'm ready to just totally hurl. And I I get that uh, that that disgusting um you know break out on a cold sweat and my mouth starts watering and i know it's just about ready to go down and there's no stall what am i gonna do and i just grabbed the hot and cold of the sink and just started going for it and uh just completely (laughs) yeah up every last ounce of fluid in my body and the kids and the kid keeps talking to me and he's
0: all he's all
1: y'all that nervous for the show (laughs) (laughs)
0: he thought you were nervous nervous. that's like one of so good it's one of my all-time favorite stories he literally thought we were like shitting our pants and throwing up in the sink because we had stage fright yeah
1: yeah and my my (laughs) uh my my biggest fears had come true and somebody was trying to catch me off guard before the show for an interview and i I was so nervous but um hope you know thankfully tom was from mxpx saved the day gave gave the kid the old Vulcan shoulder and pat on the back and said buddy now's not a good time and pushed him out the door so so that was that uh, and then I would times. say a good 24 hours after that even I we um everybody was still kind of sick like the worst was over but we still had to play the show and it was horrible I mean I
0: uh oh we played maybe half a dozen shows. I actually half dozen songs. The way I remember it was, we didn't even, we weren't even sure like what happened or if it was Taco Cabana until we got to Cornerstone and ran into the Focus and Bloodshed oh. Kids, and they were all like, yo, we got so sick. Did you guys get sick? We're yep. Like, yeah. We're like, Oh yeah. Yep. Like we thought maybe we had a flu bug or like I don't think we ever made that connection until we saw them and knew that it was like literally every single person that ate there got violently. Yep.
1: Ill. Totally. And uh we had so we played the show and it was horrible. I felt like I was gonna yak the whole time. It was just awful, awful, awful. And then I wanna say for a good twelve hours at least everybody was still kind of, you know, getting nursed back to health and and uh oh yeah. We had one of those crazy all night drives which was pretty common on that tour. You know, play the show, mm-hmm. everybody's deathly ill and we have to get back in the van and hundred degree heat and drive to freaking podunk wherever. And, uh, basically the, no air conditioning, Yeah, no air conditioning. And basically the less sick person of all of us had to drive. And I was basically, I was like hallucinating on that because I was so dehydrated. And, uh, by the time it was morning, (laughs) we stopped at a truck stop and I'll always remember this Yuri drummer, the drummer from MXPX. He's, he's like, well, man, I'm really hungry. I think I can finally eat. And he's holding up a box of chocolate milk. And some frosted chocolate donuts like those little donuts you know and he's like you think yeah. you think this will stay down okay <laughs> it's kind of like sure I, I don't know what your mom used to feed you after you were sick man but it wasn't donuts and chocolate milk
0: so there's that story sure. A little fried dough covered in uh, frosting yeah, sure. nothing like that to settle your stomach i'm sure that'll stay down just great yuri so, but so, but you didn't uh, wake up one day and suddenly become a drummer who was on tour. Um, let's go back to uh, when you first started playing drums. Well, yeah, if I remember right, when you
1: asked me to be in Blenderhead, uh, no, I okay, so I did have to practice a little bit before then. <laughs> um, so, yeah, your dad was like a teacher and all that, right? So, my dad was a public school music teacher, and from the time he was out of college until. He, he retired maybe 10 years ago maybe it's been 15 years now and then he subbed for a while but he was the general music ed teacher um well he was the band the band teacher and uh, doing high school band that was so crazy I mean, my mom was like you're gone all the time at games you know uh, rehearsing the band for marching practice and stuff and you know I've got I've got two other older brothers and older sister and it's like nah it's time to do something different so then he did um grade school music ed um for the rest of his career and uh that was great because there was a lot of music in the house um it's funny somehow my dad missed the whole rock and roll thing i've asked him about that once i was like dad you were so he graduated high school in 56 you know which is right around the time elvis is hitting mm-hmm. the scene and stuff and i was like how did you miss the counterculture and rock and roll and all that and he's like and he says uh well, I was I was raising kids you know and so now I'm like oh right <laughs> right and we've got a almost seven right. year old almost four year old now and I'm like oh yeah you do kind of go into time warp and you miss everything oriented to pop culture so that's understandable you're it's yeah. okay dad but a uh, lot of classical he was a jazz man um, so I heard a lot of that stuff growing up and the great advantage of having a dad as a music teacher is he got me started pretty early so I'd say Probably a year before um, school band started, which would have been fifth grade, he got me a practice pad and some sticks. I knew that I wanted to play drums, and he started writing out basic notation and how to, you know, how to count in four four and read basic rhythms and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was the cool kid in band because I already had a head start and could do a drum roll by the time school band started in fifth grade. Which meant I got to be in fifth grade band and sixth grade band because none of the other drummers in sixth grade band could even do a roll yet. So, there you go. <laughs> and then I want to say I don't know. A year after that, I got my first drum kit, which was a it was a super ghetto, not like a not a toy drum set, but maybe a step up from that. <laughs> I don't even know right. if they from like Sears. Yeah, or something. I don't know if they make them anymore, but I think the brand was Royce. And my folks had some friends who had a teenage boy who had played drums and then got bored of it and were trying to unload them. And on the kick drum, it had this insignia of his band, Revolution, and these cool, you know, and this cool font that he'd done in <laughs> Sharpie, you know. So maybe some nice. some sweet 80s rock action revolution. Maybe that maybe that first demo's worth millions now, if you if anybody has a copy of it. Oh, yeah. So it played in... Um, yeah just all through school played in school band and there were a few times where i had some some jerky band teachers and i was like dad i can't deal with band anymore i I just don't want to do this and he's like oh you have so-and-so as your teacher right yeah he is a jerk just wait a year it'll get better Ah. so (laughs) props to my dad for making me stick it out um because i had a lot of fun in in school band you know went on to junior high band and did the marching band in high school and was in a award-winning jazz band throughout high school and and that was uh that was good
0: times yeah now by the time i met you you were fully into punk so uh how did how did that come into your life what was the discovery yes of punk rock that in your was life?
1: back in the 80s man it was the archaeological dig we didn't have the interwebs back then so <laughs> i had a i had a buddy up the street jim walker i've lost track of jim walker jim if you're out there look me up, man. Let's, let's, let's hang out. But Jim was one of my, uh, one of my best buddies back then. And he came across a thrasher magazine somehow. And we started getting into skateboarding and, uh, I don't know if thrasher is this way now, but, but back then it was, you know, skateboarding and punk rock was basically hand in hand back then. <clears throat> and, mm-hmm. um, so I just remember flipping through the pages and seeing these Mind blowing pictures of dudes like <laughs> doing these giant airs out of half pipes, and next to it would be like a JFA <laughs> yeah, sure. ad or whatever. I want to say I won a uh, the local college station did some call on thing, the first caller will get tickets to the JFA show. And this is <laughs> you know in like 95, like years after that. And I called in and I got tickets yeah. and I showed up to the show and they didn't have my tickets. I was pissed. <laughs> what's up with that i've, I've been robbed that man sucks. um but anyway so jim walker had a had some thrasher magazines and we were kind of getting turned on to this whole subculture <clears throat> and we also used to go down to go down to the li- the local library and uh we'd check out records yes records i know that records are making a comeback now but um back then it was cassette tapes and records that's what you had so we went down <laughs> they had punk records at your yes. library? Yeah, it was cool. They there was some there must have been a cool kid working there because they had man, they had they had probably most of the SS SST records catalog um in the library. And SST put out um mainly Black Flag, Meat Puppets, Minutemen, Hooskerdoo uh saccharine Trust, Saint Vitus, El- Descendants Descendants, yeah. Um so that was pretty badass. They had a really great catalog and so we would just pick up records that seemed interesting. Even if we didn't see ads from Thrasher or whatever, we would see a cool record cover and you you know, you'd check out a record. You get twelve records and then, you know, go back home and listen to your twelve records. So one of the records I got was Hoosker Zen Arcade, which was a uh it was like a double it was a you know, double gatefold, uh double twelve inch gatefold uh record. And it was basically a, uh, it was almost like a punk rock opera. It had like, it was like a a theme record, you know, (laughs)
0: concept album, concept
1: album, which was kind of a thing, you know, and it was seventies rock bands and 80 bands, eighties bands, but they were, um, they basically were a hardcore band. And I think it was right around the time that their sound had shifted just a little bit. So maybe a record or two Mm -hmm. after that, they put out like "Flip Your Wig," which was way more commercial, and then later "Warehouse Songs and Stories." But prior to that, they basically were a hardcore band. They were just a really just balls to the wall hardcore band, and we um, half of the songs were sort of showed that you know a little more sensitive side, you know, with more arty songs with piano and more melodic. But half of the songs were, uh, half of the songs were super aggressive. And I just, I remember listening to that and a couple songs in, you know, the, the record starts pretty heavy. And I, I literally did not know what I was listening to, you know, cause I, I was raised up. My, I had my, what is this? Yeah, my older brothers basically were listening to classic rock. They passed that stuff on down to me. So anything you would hear on like classic rock radio, now, that's basically what I grew up on so zeppelin fog hat deep purple black sabbath that kind of stuff um and i i still like that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff now but this was completely new i mean it was it was so fast and so ferocious i literally i remember looking at jim and just going dude what are we listening to and a couple songs (laughs) in it kind (laughs) of dawned on me it's like oh i've seen that quincy episode i think maybe this is punk rock (laughs) you know <laughs> like Quincy. Oh,
0: yeah, I think yeah. yeah,
1: this is punk. Um so that was my introduction to punk. And then um from there I had another skateboarding buddy who um I remember it was maybe my so that would have been seventh grade when I discovered Gen Arcade. And then we picked up JFA. I think I've got a sex pistols tape at the local store, which was kind of a bummer because it basically was just kind of high energy rock and roll. I was like, man, this isn't fast, you know? Um, so I thought <laughs> these guys were like the grandfathers of punk, you know? But um, so faster right. was better. Basically, uh, my, my buddy Lance had an older friend. It was always the older friend, you know, who, uh, yeah, sure who had some some great tapes and it was the i want to say christmas break of my eighth grade year he'd call me up and he'd say hey man kyle's got some awesome tapes you got to hear this and he would play me stuff over the phone so he played the cramps um it was bad music for bad people record that has that opening with uh garbage man with that awesome yeah. sinister riff, there and there and there and and the kick drum comes in don't 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 you ain't no yeah. punk you punk you know it's basically talking about <laughs> hard drugs and uh yeah yeah sure yeah as a 14 year old i like really connected <laughs> with that um so then it was dead kennedy's a little bit later minor threat um uh Yeah, man. I couldn't get enough. Uh, The faster, the better. And then of course my, uh, my older brother had a cool friend from California. You know, it's always a cool, cool friend from California. Um, who sold me his skateboard and it had all (laughs) these great punk band stickers on, on the bottom that I'd never heard about. And that helped me make the connection like, Oh, Thrasher magazine. Yeah. Cool. Punk bands, new skateboard, cool punk band stickers, you know, cool bands I've never heard of. So that's how it was back then as a
0: kid that uh as a kid that grew up in southern california i'll tell you that even worked for living there cuz i grew up around all that stuff and all that music and everything i remember in high school a kid that had a vespa uh, when i was like a freshman or something and it was like that's how i found out about the misfits cuz he had like a he had die cut out a misfit sticker and had it on his windscreen and i was like Misfits. What's that? That must be cool. <laughs> like, yeah. Whatever. Like just just seeing the sticker on like, you know, the wind sh- windscreen of this kid's Vespa was like how I discovered, you know, Misfits or whatever. It's weird. Oh yeah, for sure. It was sort
1: of like um you know, you would see somebody that looked cool and you would check out <laughs> what they were wearing. If they had a t-shirt <laughs> with like a, a like a really uh a cool band title, you're like, "Okay, like, you know." Mental note that it, I'm going to have to look that yeah, up. Exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, you didn't. Now it's crazy. You can just look stuff up on the Internet. And and uh but then like I had a paper out back then and all my money went to buying tapes and um, you couldn't most record stores wouldn't let you take a tape back after you'd listen to it. So it was kind of a gamble, you know, like I'd read a a review in or see an ad in Thrasher and be like, oh, the replacements, that sounds kind of cool. So then I'd go buy a tape and it was sort of a crapshoot. It's like, well, it was in Thrasher, so it's got to be at least a little bit cool. (laughs) And sometimes it'd be (laughs) a little bit of a letdown. But the cool thing about that is that because you couldn't always bring a tape back and return it after you'd listened to it, you kind of had to learn to like it, you know. So I remember getting uh, even... Um, the replacements, uh, pleased to meet me, which is a little bit mm, more, a little right. bit more commercial, you know, it wasn't punk by any stretch. So, you know, yep. I kind of hunkered down and learned to like the replacements because I wasn't gonna return the tape, you know? So I think now it's like, <laughs> you can just get a free download or like to go and stream something You're like, oh, I don't like that. And you go on to the next thing. So I think it, in a way it helped me yeah. to appreciate other subgenres a little bit more you know the first lp that i bought back then was that double gatefold uh rush album exit stage left and here's another cliche why do you think i became a drummer uh because
0: the rush is drummer
1: yes neil pert yeah yeah it's that drum solo and yyz baby it's <laughs> like I'm, i i just could not i i couldn't believe that someone could that a human being could do that you know yeah. and i'm like man i i, I gotta play drums so <laughs> it's, it's pretty crazy <laughs> yeah and and the crowd's just going nuts you know like yeah um so that was it yeah i knew that i wanted to be
0: a drummer because uh uh neil pert so thanks neil It's cool so then um you played in like high school do you play a marching band in high school yeah,
1: um so I was like the section drum leader guy calling out all the orders while we were marching and stuff. I um, played snare drum. So I did high school marching band, jazz band and like concert band. Mhm. So all of high school was pretty much me trying to take as many music classes as I could. And I'd usually skip lunch and just play the drum kit during lunchtime, you know, while the other kids are doing high schooly stuff and <laughs> you know,
0: chasing girls and stuff. I just play drums, eating yellow zingers and drinking chocolate milk. If you're Mark Solomon. Right.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I did a good amount of that for sure. Yeah. Chilling with Paul Henry and Ed Kerrigan. Um, but a lot of time I would just skip lunch and play the drums, you know, and play just as much as I could. And I think, I don't know, but junior, junior or senior year, I was probably playing as much as like a couple hours a day because of band and my own practice time at the school. Mm hmm. So I feel like that's when I really learned how to play the drums. Was in high school jazz band.
0: Now I have to believe that you and Ed and Paul and the the gang there had to been like the small band of misfits at your rural, semi-rural high school, right? Oh yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, <laughs> were we you were... having problems with were the other kids cool or were they giving you hassles? What was the deal with that? It was a pretty, it was a cool, pretty
1: cool school for the most part. Most of the kids were, um you know, I mean, pretty standard stuff. Like you don't kind of go across the tribal lines, you know, like most of the jocks sticks with the jocks and the stoners and the, and the punks kind of hang out together. And, um, but it, I mean, there was never any trouble, you know, it was just sort of understood like, Hey, I stick with my people, you stick with your people. And, (laughs) Never the twain shall meet, you know, that's right. kind of how it was. Yeah. And uh, we had, we were sort of like double whammy dorks because we were punk rockers and we were in a band. So, um, that's pretty <laughs> about as low on the totem poles you can get in high school,
0: but <laughs> high school social structure.
1: Yeah, totally. So I'd known Paul, uh, since like second grade. So we went to all the same schools together. He lived about a mile from me. Um, I met Ed and eighth grade i think mm-hmm. and then we started we started kind of the beginnings of don't know probably
0: our junior year right yeah paul henry bass player ed kerrigan guitar player yep for that band. totally and then there was dan who was paul's uh brother did he not go to your guys' school he did he was
1: okay i think he was a year was he a year or two ahead of us i can't remember mm. um so we we basically were an instrumental band, and uh, we just couldn't find somebody to do vocals. And it was really important to us at the time. Like you know, this guy's got to be a strong Christian. You know, we can't just have anybody on vocals. <laughs> so you know, people that are into punk rock and going to the youth group—that's a pretty—that's mm. kind of tough to come by. You know? Yeah, I know. Um, but Fall well, Brother that Dan demographic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it kind of narrows your choices a little bit, but. Paul's brother was into really cool music and we didn't hang out that much just because he was a few years ahead of us. But then it just sort of dawned on us like, Oh, we should ask Dan if he wants to try out for vocals. So that was interesting. He'd, uh, he'd never done that before. And was, if you know, Dan is like one of the shyest dudes ever. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, that was interesting. And then, so don't know, don't know as, uh, as we were known now was born.
0: And was that like uh toward the end of high school then or that was
1: yeah that was junior year but we didn't really we didn't start playing out until senior year mm-hmm. so i think the first kind of proper show we did was in 99 in the church basement of first baptist in renton it was uh paul and ed's church their youth their youth guy was uh mm-hmm. was really cool and they let us use the space and we promoted the show and um they were super supportive about it and uh gosh we probably i think ed has a tape of that somewhere man it'd be awesome to see that see the light of day
0: it was horrible what i'm I'm trying to connect which i've never really known or understood so this will be a good time to ask you is uh so in light of everything that we've heard so far about your music background and the and the music you were listening to where where did you guys get the inclination to do this like funk punk band where did that come from
1: yeah, so we were doing, I mean, it was sort of all across the board. Like we would do surf instrumentals and we would, um, I mean, the stuff that we were, wrote originally was pretty much just hardcore, like just really mm-hmm. fast punk. And we went to a show at Green River Community College. They used to have like a, a student center where they would put on shows a couple times a year and there was a band called mm-hmm. the Hungry Crocodiles that played and oh, they local that band. Se- yeah so a local Seattle band and they they sort of did like a revved up kind of James Brown funk thing um throw a little rap in there it was very 90s but they just rocked so hard man i don't you know we were accustomed to to seeing punk bands or sort of grungy bands back then, and they just were so completely different, and they were just so high energy, and uh, the dude was like slapping his bass, you know, and and we were like, <laughs> man, that is just so badass. Like we, that's what we got to do. I don't, I don't know. I think it was that on top of we were listening to Primus as well, and they weren't ex- right. really funky, but you know that bass slapping kind of thing. So mm-hmm. Paul just started practicing his bass like that and trying to figure out how to do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, Paul just kills it on the bass. And he just, he totally self-taught, taught himself how to play like that. And so we started just getting that kind of, that vibe into what we were doing. So we had this weird mishmash of uh, kind of primacy, kind of funky, but sort of punk. Right. Um, I'm not sure how well that ages anymore, but it was a lot of fun, you know, like our <laughs> maybe
0: uh minute was a little bit in there subliminally a little bit. Cause they have a lot yeah. of that kind of weird rhythmic rhythmic stuff going on. Yeah, totally. And, uh, we just had, I mean, it was all just
1: about a, being a total geek fest. So if anybody went to those shows back then it was, uh, you know, we dress up in ridiculous costumes and, um, you know stage presence was just sort of like Tourette's uh yeah it was just a lot of fun like yeah. whatever made people feel awkward and uh <laughs> just geek out <laughs> to the max that was what our live
0: shows were about and it was just just teenage fun you know awesome. so I don't know what happened after I mean I didn't meet you guys until like what 92 or something like that is that when the Louis Plough thing was happening yeah, I think that was about
1: 92, yeah. Yeah, at the Key Arena. Yeah. <laughs> we were the only punk rockers there, man. Yeah, I just saw- I think saw... I was sitting a, a few rows up in the bleachers with that, and I was like, hey, man, I think I, think I see a punk rocker down there. <laughs> Do you see it? <laughs> Do you, need, do you see any christian <laughs> punk band paraphernalia on him I, th- I think he's one of our guys i
0: don't i don't i don't know how i ended up at that or do you know how you ended up there did you go with like a church group or something or what i don't i don't remember the
1: circumstances i think maybe ed said something about it oh, i don't weird. i didn't know the first thing about the speaker I, I, I to this day i don't even know who that guy is
0: i just yeah. i just went i don't know We'll see. Why have I been struggling with my belief? Just the fact that we were at that thing together. I mean, obviously proved God God <laughs> exists. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> None of us have any idea what we were doing there. It's like I'm I'm already a believer. I'm not I'm yep. not going out of curiosity. Like right. I don't really go to like evangelism outreach like things. I I, I don't, know, know. I don't man. know why I was there.
1: I I don't either. I, that kind of stuff is like so far from the activities I do now, I I don't know why I was there. It was well, a move of the spirit, brother. Well, I don't well know. thank
0: thank God, Matt. That's that's what brought you into my life, and uh, sure. I don't I think we I guess we just exchanged numbers or something. We got to talking at the end, of, yeah. And then yeah, I think
1: you you exchanged numbers with Ed, and we'd heard that you were starting up Fearless Donkey, and we had a band, and voila.
0: I was doing some of the shows at the uh, like at the uh, youth room at the Calvary. Uh, mm-hmm. over there I remember some of the early shows you guys playing at that there was some stuff at that vineyard in the U district and
1: yep if i remember correctly i think i was inv- involved in bands that helped start that thing and help close that thing down <laughs> yeah that's <sounds laughs> <I> right cuz i think <laughs> i think don't know was on the the first show that you threw there if i i might be wrong but i think it was a f- the first show we played at that and i think yeah, the I think last so. the last show that they did in that room roadside played on that bill and then they they did shows later on. That church moved to a new loca- new location and they did uh I think they did sort of a
0: similar kind of thing, but Yeah. Yeah. I think like, like at the peak of all that, we were I can remember that show we did with like uh it's like Jeremy Enoch and Dave Bazan and Damien Gerardo, and, and uh I think Rossesti was choking some guy. I had to tell him to calm down. Some lot, <laughs> lot of a lot of stuff going on there. <laughs> yeah. That's that's pretty much that was pretty much it, you know?
1: Like was uh same- Damien Yep. Damien, Dave, and Jeremy hanging out in the corner and Chris
0: Esty choking somebody in the other corner. Yep. <laughs> that, that was 90s Christian punk rock, y'all. Yeah. So at some point I convinced you and Ed to join me in my new band I was starting, which was Blenderhead at that point. Yeah. And then even in the beginning of that, for some reason i still don't understand i don't know if i was listening to infectious grooves or what the or i, I, I don't, we don't had know. funk on the brain man what was it? i don't know we just did like that first single and everything it was so weird to think about now i listened to that song the other day i was just like what i, w- I did not even like this kind of music i don't even own these kind of records <laughs> like, like where the hell did this come uh, from like i know i think i was thinking about that in the shower the other
1: day i was like yeah that first single huh <laughs> where did that come from
0: like what I, What were we thinking, you know? I don't know. Just on autopilot, I guess. It's a lot of weird things going on that we weren't really uh, not too clear on. It was a
1: 90s funk thing, man. You know, like we were taking the hardcore. You know what? We really were kind of on the forefront of the rap rock. We're, oh, right. you were talking about the rap rock recently with somebody, uh, that was right?
0: lou lou's trying yeah. to say him lou from gasoline hearts trying to tell everybody he invented rap rock because dude of the i think we were a couple making but
1: we were a few years ahead of that
0: so i don't
1: i think we might need to stake that claim <laughs> there wasn't any rap happening but there was definitely some funk you know sure that's sort of like uh you know tracing the roots of uh of music back to their proper place i think that's it puts us squarely where it needs to be, the first Actually, uh, Blenderhead oh, single. Oh, you know what?
0: I think I know where that guitar thing came from. I think I finally remember now. Remember that Gorilla Biscuit song that we used to listen to? That had that bridge at the end that had the like funky, like syncopated oh. guitar thing w- yeah, over yeah. the bass line or whatever. Uh-huh. I think that's kind of we were just basically ripping that off. I think that's uh, maybe kind of where that came from. Yeah, we probably would have done better to rip off some
1: of the other riffs, but uh,
0: yeah, it was a horrible, <laughs> horrible botched uh, Gorilla Biscuit to rip off. <laughs> yeah. Well, live and learn, man. Live sure. and learn. Well, it's on YouTube, kids. You can look at that later. We won't spend yep. any time more time thinking about that. Little ride cymbal bell hitting there somewhere. Yeah, man. Sure. Of course, we want to get on to some other things, but um you and I were in a band together. We put out some records, we toured around. Got something to say about all that? we got sick and some
1: sinks. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That was, uh, that tour was a lot of fun. Um, super fun getting to know the MXPX guys better. And, uh, I gotta say I, on that tour, I spent a good bit of time hanging out with those guys and I'd be sick of you guys. So I'd go hang out in their van and, you know, drive with them to the next show. And I, I remember thinking at some point I don't know how these guys are going to continue to be a band after this tour, just like the bickering and the fighting. <laughs> and it's yeah. kind of amazing. You know, 20 years later here they are. They're still, I think they're still playing shows. They just played, they locally. just played in Seattle yeah. like a week so, ago. Yeah. So congratulations to MXPX for, for sticking it out and being the veterans, you know,
0: way to go. Way to hang in there. Yep. Well, I that time uh, in my life is mostly important to me because that's where you and I think became really tight friends. I was uh, best man in your wedding uh, mm-hmm. for a brief period of time there. You lived with me and my first wife when you're going through sort of a rough patch. Thank uh, you for that, by the way. I was thinking
1: about that the other day. <laughs> Billy yeah. Power is one of the most uh, loyal dudes you will ever know, so I appreciate that.
0: Well, you know,
1: the show is about
0: love, loyalty, and friendship. So. That's what it is. Love little teen <laughs> friendship right there. Um proof. So tell <laughs> tell me about the genesis of like uh the roadside stuff, like what was happening.
1: So I think Blenderhead was starting to wind down after the summer of 95. I've always been sort of hazy about what happened there. The band just kind of It's like the band just sort of Disintegrated, but it wasn't.
0: I can uh, I can refresh your memory if you want.
1: Please, I I know that Eben. It seems like maybe Eben wasn't super committed, and it was like, ah, oh, what the hell? Why why should we bother? But I don't I don't know if I remember clearly.
0: I basically kicked Eben out of the band. Yeah, because um, I was a dick. So that's in cliff notes. <laughs> but, yeah, I know no, him. Him and Ed went on like a mission to Africa, and then uh, he came back and. There was just sort of like this push and pull between uh, like songs that he was writing and he would sing on like on Muchacho Vivo and then Mm -hmm. songs that I would sing on like whatever. And because I was just some kid in my 20s and for whatever reason, I felt threatened by, you know, like that kind of stuff. And and, um, he was playing in that other band with Damien, I think, and just doing other stuff. And I would just like, I don't know just felt like yeah it was a combination of things feeling like he wasn't committed and stuff and like whatever he still wanted to do it and then I basically was like yeah you're done sort of kind of thing (laughs) yeah uh, and then for whatever reason uh Ed didn't feel confident in being like the only you know primary guitar person or something I don't know there's a whole bunch of weird stuff that happened then and just kind of that was the end yep so there you go I take responsibility for that that was that
1: well, that's the right thing to do, Bill Bomp Power. Romp. Billy Power. But uh yeah, I don't know. That that uh whenever a band kind of winds down, I always think it's it's amazing that bands exist at all. It, I mean a band that is sort of in a um you know, a democratic type of rock band kind of thing, like you get together in a room and you jam a riff and you put a song together and everybody's kinda of doing their part. It's amazing that a band even gets to a point where they can go and tour, really. You know? Yep. I think by design bands are basically doomed from the beginning, (laughs) you know, it's like that thing that, that creates that tension that comes across in the music, you know, at least aggressive oriented music, um, capturing that thing has, I think it has something to do with that tension and that dynamic between people. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's basically just destined to fail basically.
0: Yeah, the more te- the more tension, the better as far as the arts concerned. Yeah, um, totally. and the live performances and all that stuff and whatever you know, everybody coming unhinged and wanting to kill each other always makes for good shows and and all that stuff. But <laughs> can get a yeah. little awkward when everybody steps back into the van for eight hours or ten hours or whatever. A little awkward. Yeah, yeah. just a one, just a two-person relationship or marriage or whatever is hard enough to maintain. Imagine that doubled or uh, you know tripled if you add in crew and people. You know. It can get complicated.
1: Yep. And so, if we got any young listeners out there, you know, if you got to a point where you can actually get in the studio or play a show outside of your town, nice work, you did it. Yeah. Way to go. It probably won't be lasting much longer, but you know, enjoy it while you can.
0: Looks like you made it.
1: Yep. (laughs) Yeah. So after the after the Blenderhead tour and. Uh, after that summer i think the last show we played was that uh, was the first Tomfest. yes and roadside had been playing for a little bit and i was a really big fan um they were doing kind of a stop start um quiet loud kind of, you know indie rock ish kind of thing um and i had known doug from years previous and uh was really excited about about those guys and they were starting to play out a little bit and Jonathan Ford moved up to Seattle and he replaced Todd Florence on bass. And uh and Jonathan lived with us at the House of Funk. Mm-hmm. Oh, we got so many stories at the House of Funk, Bill. So um, many. But, um, Jonathan and I had pretty kind of the same interest in music and and he was saying, Man, you should you should play drums on roadside. And I was like, Well, I lo- I really like your band, but you guys already have a drummer, so we probably shouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> but yeah. um Joel Metzger uh was having some health issues and was in, in and out of the hospital and uh the guys called me up and they had a show coming up at the um uh, ground zero over on the east side and they wanted me to fill in for the show. I was like, Hell yeah, I love I love roadside, so I'll totally play that show. And by the time the show rolled around they'd had a talk with Joel and Joel's like, if you guys are wanting to tour and play out, you know, with my health concerns, I don't know how well that's going to work out. So you should probably just ask Matt to play drums. So that first show was sort of my inauguration into roadside. Um, and originally, you know, I was just filling in and I did that occasionally with the other bands. I think I did that with uh, Coolidge Damien's band a mm-hmm. few times as well, but, um, just sort of filling in to help out. And, uh, then I became a bona fide. Member of the band, and I think it was right around the time that their their first record came out. So right when that record came out, the band kind of blew up and basically reformed, and uh, that's when we started kind of tweaking the
0: sound a little bit. Right. You were a four-piece at that point. You posted a picture, uh, I think, on Instagram yesterday, right? Indeed, uh, the, yep. Around that yep. time. Yeah, that was right around that time,
1: the first sort of mix-up of the lineup in Roadside when Mike Dente was still... Uh, playing guitar and and sharing vocals with Doug and uh I want to say that incarnation we did that for my timeline might be messed up but maybe
0: six or eight months or so yeah I totally and, forgot about that and I saw that photo I was like who's this fourth guy what's he doing here yeah totally Who's that guy? Oh, it's Mike. No diss to Mike. Mike uh No, Mike's... no, not at all, but it was just like I had, they, for so long you were that three piece and that's kind of what's indelible I think in really? my mind and most people's minds probably, but Yeah, totally. Yeah, so we uh we just tried we just played as much as
1: we could around town. Um Yeah, I remember for a while we were doing like a show a week and we were trying to think about how to strategize that. Okay, like at what point are the local people going to be saying okay, I've seen these guys enough. Um, we were just trying to fill a room, you know? Yeah. Uh, which in Seattle then was, was not a small feat. So we just played like crazy. Um, I think the first show we did as a, as a three piece, it was at the Pioneer square theater. Did you ever go to a show there? Yeah. I saw it was uh, sh- uh,
0: like into another there with that band shift and Yeah, other stuff it's right down the end of that block near the old tooth and nail office right
1: yeah it was a short-lived show of course like the main the main venue then was the velvet elvis but uh, pioneer square theater and i can't remember all the bands on that bill but i I gotta say that we played with burning witch nice which was badass like So if there are any fans out there of the Southern Lord stuff, like the doomy, super sludgy, kind of satanic, scary stuff, uh Burning Witch played and that was uh that was pretty awesome. I, I had no point of reference of what I was listening to. Like they're they're down tuned to freaking Z and uh the <laughs> vocalist was kind of doing that carcass like zeo style vocal and yeah. was looking all strung out and super scary. Uh, probably was wearing corpse paint. I don't know. Or maybe he just had a bad complexion. <laughs> but that was an awesome show. Wow. And that was the first show that we did as a three-piece. And we were, I think when about when Mike left, we were trying to figure out if we could do it as a three-piece because we had started writing new material. And, I mean, I think there was talk of, like, should we add another guitar? Should we go on as a three-piece? And we're just like, screw it. We're going to do it. So... We figured out how to make it work at that first uh, first show with Burning Witch at the Pioneer right. Square
0: Theater. And then you guys started touring like crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, were- yeah. Yeah. We want
1: well, to say we did a short stint and just prior to Mike leaving the band down in California and uh, Andrew Ryzik, I think, helped us with some shows. We played the Huntington Beach Library and a few places down there. Might quit, and then that summer of '96, we went on tour with Stavesacre, and that was, mm. and uh, they were between drummers, so I did double duty on that tour, and I was kind of for hire drummer for Stavesacre on that tour, and that was that
0: was super fun. I think I saw you guys. I thought I saw you play with them in Wilmar Minnesota, at Sunshine Festival on one of that one of those times. Whoa, yeah. I don't think I don't
1: remember that show. That was a fun yeah. tour though.
0: You'll find this happens more and more as we get older, Yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I remember a few of those shows, but... uh, Yeah.
0: Yeah, that was a great tour. It was super fun. And then as time went on, you guys started to do sort of more and more, uh, I don't want to call it legit, as if the other things you weren't doing weren't legit, but you know what I mean? It became important for you guys to just play at regular places and all that kind of stuff and whatever. Yeah. I don't know why I'm getting it. Yeah, well, I think the subtext
1: there, Bill, is that we stopped playing Christian shows. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of what it is. So there was a there was a uh, bit of experimentation back in those days, and I remember it, it was sort of how Blenderhead rolled too, where we were like, "Look, we're not we're not a quote unquote Christian band where we don't necessarily have like a Christian-y message," and it's that whole debate about you know Christian mm-hmm. band or Christians in a band. That stupid debate. Whatever. Read addicted to, Medi- addicted, to Mediocr- addicted to mediocrity, and you'll you'll figure it I out. I already,
0: I already feel my stomach get getting in knots. Yeah, I know,
1: I know, we, but we still got to go there. So, oh I, I feel like in those days, bands were saying, "Yeah, you know, like Blenderhead, that's not what we do." You know, when we played Seattle, we were just playing all ages shows and playing in bars and stuff. And then we went on that tour, we there was sort of a high priority that we would play shows that were sort of general type venues. Like, Mm -hmm. so you might have like a youth pastor guy putting on a show, but it would be say in a gymnasium or be like in a neutral place. So it wasn't creepy and churchy local theater or whatever. Yeah. But I feel like those kinds of tours always ended up being kind of creepy and churchy. So, Mm -hmm. um, that was a, a little bit of what that Blenderhead MXPX tour was like. If I remember, um, we kind of split the difference on it, and you know, we had uh, we had a man about half and half. Yeah. yeah, we had a management company, and we, you know, of course, we weren't booking all of that, so we didn't have complete control on the venues. And then the Stavesacre and roadside tour was a little bit of that too. It was it tended to be kind of general venues, but it was still pretty churchy. And I just i I just felt really out of place with that because those bands just were not, we didn't have like a super evangelical message and yeah, we were on tooth and nail. There was definitely a subculture there, but, um, it was really hard to connect to that whole vibe. So you put, you know, it wasn't uncommon to play a show and then you have kids coming up to you asking you weird questions like, are you a Christian? Will you pray with me? You know, that kind of stuff. (laughs) And, um, I, I, it was just like, I didn't. I didn't sign up to this. I, I didn't sign up for this. Like I'm in a I'm in an indie rock band. I'm in a punk band. This doesn't make any sense to me. So I'm after a drummer, not a
0: therapist.
1: Exactly. Um, and I'm not your pastor. So after that tour, um, we just decided, yeah, we're not gonna do tours like that again. So Doug started booking all of our tours and literally just got on the phone and started cold, cold calling venues. And, um, it's funny too, cause Doug would go down to the tooth and nail offices and just use the telephone. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sorry for that long distance bill there, Brent, uh, the long distance phone bill. Don't be sorry. Uh, but, um, he just started hitting it really hard and, and booking those tours and we just played total general market type tours. So we mm. would play, just played bars and all ages places and, uh, and basements and, that's what we were gonna do. Uh, mm-hmm. If if Blenderhead was sort of on that, creeped out by the Christiany scene roadside, was probably even more so. So we just we knew that there was sort of the baggage of that general fan base. Um, and I I appreciated all those people that came to the shows, but that's just not what we were doing, you know.
0: And
1: mm-hmm. um, you guys would
0: still play like Cornerstone, uh, yeah, from time to time, though, right? Yeah, which probably is
1: a contradiction. <laughs> honestly <laughs> but uh yeah i mean i felt like some of those trappings weren't there as much at cornerstone um and honestly it was uh a good place to meet up with friends and sell a yep. lot of merch so yeah there sure. was i think there probably yeah there's a lot of conflict of interest with that for sure but it was an opportunity to play in in front of a ton of people i mean those by far were the biggest shows we ever played same with Blenderhead too. I mean, playing yeah. in front of like fifteen hundred people is pretty awesome when you're accustomed to playing to like eighty.
0: Yeah, no question.
1: I mean, yeah, yeah. So we played Cornerstone. Uh, I don't know, three. I think three years in a row.
0: Right. So then, uh, you guys put out a bunch of records. You got to do a record with Jay Robbins. I'm super jealous.
1: Oh yeah, that was awesome.
0: Yeah. I remember, uh, Jay sitting in my office with me at tooth and nail, uh, talking about bands and stuff. And I was just trying so hard to be chill and cool. And it was just yeah. like impossible. I can tell I made him like super uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> they would, later when he came to town with burning airlines and stuff, they would put me like on the list. Like I remember when Jawbox came and I had a broken leg and I was like on the guest list and I'm like, I've, I've made it, man. My favorite band yeah. put me on their guest list or like whatever. But That's then I was awesome. just like, every time I got around that guy, I was like, uh, 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 uh. yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. I know I felt same. trying so so hard to be nice but i was just like i just could not i was just fanboyed out around that guy yeah i was like the uh the chris farley skit like
1: uh remember um remember that time uh you were in a band (laughs) like hey bro uh you can just relax it's it's all good Uh, i felt the same way and um we were Me and, let's see, I was living with John Spaulding in the basement of this really ghetto apartment building. And Doug and Jonathan lived upstairs. And I think Jay was crashing up in their apartment. And, uh, or maybe he was staying with me and John. I can't remember. But somebody called for Jay, and it was Kim Coletta and i was like sure. dude i just it just blew my mind i was like i'm i'm talking to kim coletta from job bass player for jawbox on the phone
0: yeah yeah yeah
1: and jay robbins is staying at my house like <laughs> i've made it bro i made it man so that was uh that was pretty great
0: that reminds me of when we were recording uh, "Muchacho Vivo" and we found out that Joan Jett had just been in there with like the Gits or somebody producing the record. Oh yeah, remember that? And there was like the cough drop on the on the on the uh, music stand, and and Eben's like, "Wait, wait, this is Joan Jett's cough drop." <laughs> and He like he put it in his mouth. Hey guys, guys, I'm eating Joan Jett's <laughs> cough drop. <laughs> nice.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yep. Oca- occasionally you get that lucky break, man, and you you get to. Uh... I Taste the greatness. <laughs> Taste the greatness
0: of the cough drop. That's right. Now what was the house after the House of Funk where we did many shows and you guys all lived together and what it was a Hiawatha House? Is that the other Yeah. The post
1: Yep. So House of Funk. Um all the kids out there can watch the Tooth and Nail documentary. It just came out, talks a little bit about that. So some of the early Tooth and Nail bands would come through. It was just a totally gross, dilapidated house in the u district just super ghetto bunch of dudes also funk as
0: in funky gross more funky music
1: (laughs) yep indeed like matted brown carpet funky gross like Like broken out yeah broken out boarded up window type house uh but we had many a show there it was a lot of fun and i think we had about a three-year run there that's where blunderhead did at least from that that era we did most of our, our rehearsals there and roadside also rehearsed there. Yep. And uh and so I was about three years at that house, putting on shows, um, rehearsing in the living room. And then we moved up a few blocks up the street to a nicer house, moving up in the world. Yeah. It was actually a house where there had been a fire and it basically had been all completely remodeled, like they the uh insurance money they just it was this cool old house that they just completely redone. It was like moving into a new house. It was awesome. Um, so that was a smaller group of people. It was me, Doug, Jonathan from Roadside, James Morelos, who was doing A and R at Tooth and Nail, uh, mm-hmm. Jeff Betker, ninety
0: pound was. Oh, that's right. I forgot Jeff was there.
1: Yeah, and then um, yeah. So we did some. We did a few shows in the living room there. We had really uptight landlords, and eventually got probably illegally booted from there. You ne- never gave <laughs> us any seeing, written
0: notice. I remember seeing uh Mineral play in the basement Yeah. at that house. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So we had uh we would do shows in the basement. We had Mineral play there. Uh This is going way out there, but Thrones played there. Um and that is Joe Preston who later played in Sun and has done a bunch of other really weird stuff. I think no, not Sun. Uh, Earth. He played in Earth. Anyway, I'm getting one of the way out there. Celestial uh, bands. <laughs> They're like a like a drone, like a drone, yeah, like super heavy band. Um, so yeah, we did some shows there. Who else played there? We had Joe Christmas come through. They stayed with us. Uh, almost got us kicked out of the house when we first moved in. We had, we had these older <laughs> landlords that just were kind of always spying on us. And so I remember when the Joe Christmas guys were there. Um, it was like, Hey, my landlord's out in the front, you know, like weeding or something. Just make sure you go out the back and they just (laughs) were totally on to us. They knew that we had people staying there all the time. And when we, we had a, I think one of the last shows we did was roadside murder city devils and I want to say bare minimum played bare minimum are not a well-known band outside of Seattle, but Oh they were badass and a huge influence to us at that time. Um I think that show probably got us kicked out. <laughs>
0: Cuz <'Cause> we <laughs> just had it, shows huh? in the living
1: room and there were apartment buildings all around and people would right.
0: complain and Sure. Yeah, those fun times. Yeah, oh the folly of youth. That's yes. good stuff. Um so somewhere like so what what was like the end of Roadside? Cuz I don't even remember
1: yeah that'd be fast forwarding a year or two after that um the end of roadside was we'd recorded with bob Weston um and done eight hours away from being a man and we toured on that um as much as we could, and we were just doing like you know crappy flexible labor jobs and then tour when we could. We we didn't tour as hard as some bands did, but we would try you know every season we would try and go out for, you know, like a month at a time, so fall, spring, summer we would try and and tour a little bit each season. So we toured on that as much as we could. And then we recorded I'm the I'm the Day of Current Taste with Jay Robbins uh sometime in 97 or 98 can't remember exactly when that came out um that that came out like end of summer 98 or maybe fall of 98 so we we toured that summer uh went out to cornerstone and did that whole thing and uh it was before that record came out but we we played one of the bigger stages at cornerstone that was great and and played a lot of that material and we got back that summer and uh, I felt like that tour went really well. And, and back then, you know, in those bands, it was a success was we're not spending our own money and draining right. our own bank accounts.
0: Not so in a I felt like whole. Yeah.
1: yeah, totally. I felt like we kind of were at that place where it was like, oh, we're not going into personal debt by being on tour. That's great. Like we're we're making a little bit of headway and we're playing pretty good shows. Uh, sometime around that time, we got a chance to play with Don Caballero at the. Uh, um, Fireside Bowl in Chicago, which was a huge wow. deal for us. Um, yeah. and, uh, they were an influence at the time for sure. So we felt like things were going pretty well. We got back, um, Jonathan Ford started playing bass in Pedro mm-hmm. and, uh, was kind of, I think there was a, maybe a little bit of overlap. I can't remember for sure. And Pedro Lion with the yeah, Amazon. yeah, he was playing with Bazon and, uh, and then he just decided he wanted to quit roadside and move to Chicago. And that was He that. moved to Japusa it, when he, he went there? Yeah, he moved to Japusa. Yeah. It was weird, though. Like, it it really felt like it came out of nowhere. I remember Doug telling me, well, Jonathan quit and he's going to play in Pedro now. <laughs> and it, it just sort of broadsided me. I was like, what? Like, I?" I didn't know there was anything wrong. I felt like things were going pretty well, you know? Um, so that was kind of weird. Uh, and I don't, it'd be interesting to hear his point of view. No, I mean all these years later, no hard feelings whatsoever, but sure, that was just kind of weird. The band just sort of disintegrated. And, um, I remember being at Tom fest, I think right after that happened. And I was talking to Jason Martin. He's like, Hey man, Bro, just (laughs) man, you just need to get another bass player, man, and just keep doing it, bro. You know how (laughs) Chase Martin talks, and uh, that just didn't. I I think we thought you know maybe Jeff Betker could step in on bass and we keep going, but I felt like we were the kind of band where very collaborative, very collaborative, and it just felt creepy to have somebody else step in. So yeah, yeah, we were done. The record came out. And uh, that was that.
0: Matt Johnson, everybody, the visual timekeeper himself. Uh, the music on the outro today is an unfinished instrumental by the last project that Matt played drums on. It's called Deathbed Atheist, and it features Nate from Frotis and Ryan from Demon Hunter. And it's awesome. Uh, it's on YouTube if you want to check that out. Um, be sure to check out part two of my interview with Matt on episode 12, where we get into his time at Mars Hill church in Seattle and their controversial pastor and, uh, how that all went down. Um, I'd like to thank you as always for listening and sharing the show. I want to let you know that we have merchandise now available as well as a Patreon page where you can support the show. I'm trying to keep this show uh, advertising free, Um, so if you enjoy the podcast and you'd like to contribute, you can either buy a shirt or a coffee mug, um, or you can give a monthly contribution. Uh, The show is always going to be free, but if you can give even a dollar an episode, um, that would really help me out, help me get some gear that I want to get and, uh, you know... Just keep this thing going. So uh, just go to urbanachievershow.com. Look under the links for sponsors at the bottom of the current episode. And uh, you can click on the links there. And thank you uh, in advance for your support. Um, As always, you can follow Urban Achiever on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Urban Achiever PC. And if you ever want to reach out, you can just email me at any time at billy at urbanachievershow.com. And until next time, keep up the good work. I'm proud of you.